you haven't been uh, worshiping with us in the last few weeks, then you might not know that uh, two things. We're in the middle of a series on Genesis, and we're also not doing uh, children's church right now. So we're forcing the parents to pay better attention by asking the kids a question that they should go home and ask their parents later. So parents, you know, perk up here. Uh, Kids, raise your hand if you consider yourself a, a kid. All right. All right, that's pretty good. How many of you have had a, had a birthday in the last year or so? <laughs> Do you think you'll have another one soon? Who knows right now how far away their next birthday is? Shout it out. You can shout it to me. Months, days, hours, doesn't matter. Ten months? Only one person is having a birthday that they know when it is. <laughs> All right. Now close your eyes. Imagine that your birthday is right now, okay? And, and there's that cake. You know the cake that you love? For me, all cake is ridiculous, so I liked ice cream cake every year. My wife still makes what my mom made me when I was like five. Okay, imagine your cake. Can you taste it? Do you see and the, the frosting? Okay, now open your eyes. Where's the cake? Is the cake there? So this week, maybe you can convince your parents to not make your birthday cake, because that has to stay special, but to maybe make some other kind of cake you could bake together. And while you're baking the cake, I want you to ask them, what does it mean to hope for something that you can't see? And what does it mean to trust someone? Because do you trust that maybe your parents will actually let you have the cake that you like on your birthday? I want you to ask them what it means that you can trust them and what it means to hope for something that you can't see, all right? And then bring me a piece of cake next week. Let me read our Old Testament reading for us and pray and we'll get started. This is from Genesis 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me? Since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for four hundred years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. 
You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its fulfillment or its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I ask that you would be present with us this morning. That as we consider what it means to trust you, that we would find you faithful. And that as we come to your table, we would find ourselves being renewed in faith, resting in you. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. In the Italian film, Life is Beautiful, Roberto Benigni plays a man named Guido, who is a Jewish-Italian bookshop owner. And the story goes that he falls in love with this woman named uh, Dora, and they have a son named Joshua, and Joshua grows up under the shadow of World War II in Europe. And eventually, Guido and Joshua are sent to a concentration camp, and Dora, even though she's not Jewish, decides to ride with them, and she gets uh, thrown in prison as well, although they're separated. And it's in this concentration camp that Guido's sense of playful imagination starts to come out, and it works to shield his son Joshua from the horror of their present situation. So he convinces his young son that actually what they're doing is playing a very complicated game, and that the goal of the game is to reach a thousand points, and whoever reaches a thousand points first will get a tank. Everything within the concentration camp is explained to Joshua in terms of this game. The Nazi guards are mean and angry, but Guido tells Joshua it's just because they're playing the game too and they really want to win. Chores are necessary because you have to earn points. So all of this hard labor that they're doing, he just told Joshua that's how you're going to earn points and eventually win the game. Complaining would only cost points, so it's important to stay chipper. Don't complain about where is mom or the work is too hard. Just try to stay positive and you can win the game. Seems rather foolish, but eventually Joshua's trust in his father leads to his salvation. The Americans are on their way and they're about ready to free this concentration camp. And Guido instructs Joshua to remain hidden until everyone is gone and that if he does so, he has a very good chance of winning the game. But before their rescuers can arrive, Guido is off looking for Dora, and as he's trying to find her, he's caught by a guard who then decides to execute him before the Americans can come and free him. And Guido realizes that he's going to be walking right past where Joshua is hiding on his way to the And he knows that if he, he doesn't fake the game in this moment, Joshua is going to run out of hiding and get killed himself. And so he starts to walk like a clown. He makes fun of the goose-stepping of the Italian army and walks like a clown past Joshua straight to his own death so that his son would think that the game was still on. 
And what ends up happening is that Joshua remains hidden until the Americans get there. And as soon as they pull in, he climbs up on a tank and he wins the game. Our story this morning is one in which the objective reality, as any sane adult would see it, is one of bleakness, barrenness, and dried up, dying desert. Abram, who I may refer to as Abraham for half of the sermon. Sorry, it's habit. Abram and Sarah have left everything that they have ever known. They left home and family and they struck out for nowhere, all because why? Abraham was hearing voices telling him to get out of Ur, telling him that despite the fact that Sarah's womb was as dry as the desert they'd be tramping through, they would have a son. They would have an heir. And Abram doesn't say a word in response to this voice. He just goes. He just believes and obeys. But as time drags on, having a family moves from uh, unlikely to impossible. And home is now seemingly a miles away, and death seems right next door. But you see, there's this alternate story that Abram's been hearing. And it seems like a fiction. It seems as ludicrous as convincing your own son that being in a concentration camp is a game. And the questions before us are two sides of the same coin. Can Abraham or Abram trust the story that God is telling him? And can the God of that story actually be trusted? Can Abram find within himself faith? And can that God show himself faithful? Well, we're going to work through this story sort of like a scratch it, and as we keep scraping off the film, we're going to see a picture of faith emerge that for some of us may be a bit surprising. So first, let me just give you the overall shape of the story, and then we'll dive into the details a little bit. Um, Because our narrator here has actually pushed together two episodes to form one story that they, they echo each other and serve to fill each other out. And so you can kind of see just laid out on the page there for you, the first half in this first episode takes place at night. And God comes and makes a promise to Abraham with an I am statement. He says that I will be your great reward. And Abram responds with complaint and questioning. And then God reassures him with symbols. In this case, it's the stars in the sky symbolizing the descendants that Abram would have, that he will be given the son of promise. And Abram responds to that with trust. And then in scene two, it takes place at the evening, at sunset. And God comes to Abram and makes a promise to him with an I am statement. And Abram responds to God with questioning. And then God reassures him again with symbolic acts. In this case, it's cutting a covenant to assure him that he will be given the land of promise. And Abram responds to that with trust. So as we work through the rest of the details, we're going to do so by looking at the characters, the covenant, and the crumbly concreteness of faith. So if we'd been walking through each chapter of Genesis all the way along, we would have seen that the narrative in Genesis goes abruptly from this very high, very bird's-eye view where all of humanity seems sort of lumped together and the entire earth seems to be in view, and it dives way, way down to focus on Abraham. And from here on out, the story of Genesis really is going to focus on the family of Abraham. We've gone from looking at the entire human family to one particular family. And as I already alluded to, God comes to Abram and he tells him to leave his hometown and to set out to a land that God would show to him and give to him. And God tells him that he will make Abram into a great nation and the entire world will be blessed through his offspring. And Abram doesn't say a word. He just sets out and things aren't easy. 
He brings his nephew Lot along with him, and he causes trouble for Abram at every turn. Abram finds himself being dragged into wars that have nothing to do with him, and as he's trudging along with his entire household, he's getting older and older, and his wife is getting older and older, and no offspring has come. And in this culture, land is meaningless without offspring. But the narrator actually hints to us that Abram isn't just some guy. He's not just any guy. There's a, there's a revelation formula that is used throughout Scripture. It, it goes like this. The word of the Lord came to, and then it names who it came to. And almost every single time it's used in the Hebrew Scriptures, it's used in reference to a prophet in the prophetic literature. This is the first time it's been used in Genesis, and it's referring to Abraham. None of the other patriarchs have this sort of identity marker. And what Genesis actually tells us later and what is borne out through the rest of Scripture is that Abram himself is a prophet. We're going to uncover more about what we know about Abram when we look at his faith in a moment. But Before we go there, I'd like us to consider the character of Yahweh, the character of this God who comes and talks with Abram. In this episode particularly, God is presented as both personal and completely enigmatic. In the covenant scene that we'll look at in a moment, he appears as fire and smoke and dreadful darkness, which is exactly as he will appear at Sinai. Generations from now, when Abram's family is brought out of slavery and they come to make a covenant with the same God, they come to his mountain and it's described in the exact same terms. Smoke, fire, and dreadful darkness. In that episode, as, as Abram's descendants are being led out, God follows them and leads them in clouds of pillar or, or pillars of cloud and fire. And these revelations are ultimately mysterious, but they point to something very key about the nature of God, and that is that He is self-revelatory. He illuminates the things that are in orbit around Him. But as He does so, He is completely confounding. The deeper that you get, the deeper you are pulled into him, the smokier and darker things get. The more his fire illuminates who he is, the more the smoke and darkness obscure and confound who God truly is. Because God is no one's parlor trick. And it's important for us to realize that you and I have more in common with people like Adolf Hitler or Jeffrey Dahmer than we do with this God. He is entirely other, which is staggering when we realize that he comes and speaks to Abram. The NIV translation of verse 4, when it says, then the word of the Lord came to him, has weakened the, the true meaning of the text. What it really says is, look, look, the word of the Lord came to a man. If, if it was a California surfer translation, it would be like, dudes, so epic. Epically, the word of the Lord came to Abram. It's even more staggering when we consider the nature of the covenant that God makes with Abram and the nature of Abram's response of faith. The covenant-making scene in this story is incredibly mysterious. It's, it's apparent that it ties in with something that Abraham was familiar with because he just gets to work right away and understands how this is done. And so there are some clues in broader ancient Near East culture that can help us understand what's happening here. Now, the actual uh, sort of linguistic etymology of the phrase to make a covenant is really to cut a covenant, which we see happening in the cutting of the animals. It's actually reflected in the actions themselves. 
And in this culture, when two parties wanted to make a binding pact, a very solemn agreement that would follow them for their entire lives, here's how it would go. Together they would slaughter the appropriate animals, a sign that they were willing to to make this promise at cost to themselves. And then they would set the pieces apart from each other, and oftentimes the blood from these animal carcasses would start to pool in between where the pieces were set. And then both parties would walk through the pieces of flesh where the blood was pooling. And I realize that this may sound quite gruesome and horrific to our modern sensibilities, but the symbolism of what was happening here was actually quite, quite serious. We can't just look back and say, oh, well, that culture was so barbaric, they didn't really have an understanding of how horrific this kind of thing was. No, they understood exactly what they were doing, because this sort of covenant, each party is essentially saying, if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, may this be my fate. You can cut me in half and walk through my blood if I don't hold up my end of the bargain. In this case, the particulars of the covenant surround this, this matter of inheriting the land. God is covenanting to Abram that this land that has been promised to him will indeed be handed down. Not only that, but the issue that Abram is upset about, the fact that land is meaningless without an heir, will be dealt with because God will give him a child from his own loins, not an adopted heir. But the offspring of Abraham would come to inherit this land. But notice what's happening here. Because in verse 12, we learn that Abram is in the deepest of slumbers. And this is actually the same phrase that is used to describe way back in Genesis chapter 2, when God puts Adam to sleep to pull out a rib to make Eve. Another very enigmatic story. What we know is that here is Abraham, one of the two primary players in this covenant, and he's basically asleep, watching it happen in a vision. As he drifts into the darkness of God's presence, all we see is the fire and smoke of God's presence pass between the pieces. And metaphorically, God is getting the blood of this covenant on his feet while Abraham stays clear. Now, to say very much more about this covenant would be to enter into speculation because, as I said, what is pictured for us here is a mystery. It is a hazy description of ancient things that have long been hidden from human memory. But what we can say is this, that in making himself the party to be held accountable, God has made Abram's faith the only guarantee needed. And what is unfolding for us here is the same drama that Genesis has been about all along, that God is not content to allow his wayward creation to just continue on their pathway to destruction. No, he is barreling after them with full force, and he actually aligns his fate with theirs. He doesn't have to enter into this sort of covenant, but he does. And it's a foreshadowing of the day when God will eventually take flesh in Jesus. And he takes on the death of the world, essentially saying, I will hold up both ends of this agreement, mine and yours. The only thing required of humanity in this covenant is faith. It's trust. It's trust that God will make a provision for our failure. And the Apostle Paul spends a great deal of time in more than one letter to the early church fleshing out what it means that Abraham was justified, that he was considered righteous or made right with God simply by his faith. That is an incredible doctrine that is completely central to the Christian faith. We can get into that when we look at Paul's letters, but for now, I want us to stick with the text before us because it doesn't draw us into an excursus on how justification works. Rather, it describes for us Abraham's faith 
and how it's instructive for our own. Now, as I said at the beginning, Abram and Sarah have been promised a child, but they're still living in a world marked by barrenness. And up till now, when God tells Abraham something, Abram just simply acts in faith without saying a word. He just goes. But now you can almost hear the tension, almost an accusatory tone in his voice. God comes to him again and says, Abram, don't be afraid. I will make your reward great. What could you possibly give me? He says, I'm still childless. And when I die, I'm going to have to sign over my estate to a servant. And then there's a pause. And God just lets him go right on talking. And like most people do when they're frustrated, Abram says the exact same thing. You haven't given me any children. And when I die, I'm going to have to sign my estate over to a servant. And that's when verse 4 happens. Look, dude, it's epic. The word of the Lord came to Abram and says, Eliezer will not be your heir. A son of your own flesh and blood will be your heir. Come here. Look at all of these stars and try to count them. This is what your offspring will be. And Abram believed. And it's credited to him as righteousness. It changes his standing before God. And then God says, I am the Lord who brought you up out of Ur to give you this land to take possession of it, which is a phrase that will get used a lot with Abram's descendants. He will constantly be reminding the people of Israel that he is the Lord who brought them up out of, in that case, it's Egypt. So here we have an exodus of Abram that will eventually be the exodus of his descendants. And Abram responds, even after he just believed, he responds again by saying, well, how can I know? How can I know that I'm actually going to take possession of it? And then God responds by cutting that covenant with him. It's been suggested that that Abram's complaints against God are so palpable that it was actually a later editor who went back and put in verse 6 that that Abram believed God and was justified because otherwise this is such a horrific story that the leader of this nation— doesn't believe a word God is saying is what it seems like. And it certainly does seem like whenever Abram opens his mouth, he reveals the fact that he doesn't really believe. Or does he? If faith is simply quiet pietism, something that can hide away from the parched desert terrain of life, then perhaps Abram really isn't believing. Or it could be that our conceptions of faith simply aren't robust enough. If we take this story at face value, we'll see that the quote that I put in the front of your bulletin from Walter Brueggemann is true, that complaint and faith are not antithetical to one another. Complaint is based on taking God seriously. Faith is not a dance through a flowery meadow. Who needs faith for that? Faith is shakily putting one foot in front of the other through the valley of the shadow of death. Faith is noisy. Faith involves fighting, wrestling, and oftentimes anger and impatience. And a lot of us have this crazy notion that's sort of left over from our British heritage that that somehow keeping calm and carrying on, having a stiff upper lip, is the only true virtue in life. And that emotional expression is somehow wrong, somehow not faith. But what Abram shows us is that it is in this emotive outburst that faith finds its footing. Faith shouts back because it's counting on the promises of God. Silence in the face of delayed promises is not virtue. 
It's a sign of despair. It's a sign that we don't really believe God and we can't take him seriously enough to prove us wrong and so we just stop talking altogether. Faith is noisy. And it's incredibly earthy. Notice that all the promises that Abram is taking hold of are incredibly physical. A physical child. A physical plot of land. Apparently, if you want to enter into relationship with God through faith, you've got to be willing to get dirty because God, who makes covenants, the true God, deals in dust. All along, his mission has been to have a place in which he will dwell with his people. And in order to get what he wants, he wraps himself in dust and goes to death. And that is what we are now called to take trust in, to have faith in. We are called, like Abram and Sarah, to respond not to anything that we can see clearly in the world, but to a word which promises to overcome the barrenness of the present reality. Now, some of you are literally dealing with the pain and emptiness of childlessness. And it's an emptiness that just never goes away, is it? Others of you are dealing with the loss of a child, maybe physically, literally, or maybe more metaphorically, in that they have turned their back on you and relationship with you. And if you've been a member of the church, perhaps they have turned their back on Jesus. Some of you are wrestling through incredibly dry desert patches. You've been a person of faith for years, and yet God seems to be nowhere. Suddenly, darkness is all around you. Some of you have been on the outskirts of faith for most of your life. You've never really been able to trust that Jesus is God and that he has brought resurrection into a dying world. And to all of you, I say, don't be afraid to make noise. Don't be afraid of the dirt, and don't be afraid when the concrete of your faith seems to be crumbling, because faith is a deep trust that even when trust itself is cracking open, God will remain faithful. It's like one of those magic eye paintings. You guys ever use those? When I was a kid, I didn't understand how they worked, so instead of relaxing my eyes, I would go cross-eyed. And so I could see that there was a three-dimensional deal to this picture, but it was backwards, so it was still completely meaningless. I, I was like, "Who? what crazy person would make this? There's no actual shape here. But when I learned to look past the picture is when I could see what was actually happening, and that's what faith asks of us. It doesn't ask us to turn the book over and no longer look at the reality that's all around us. It asks us to look right through it to see what God is going to do. We are standing as people living between times, caught between a promise and its fulfillment. And at times, it really can feel as if we're being pulled apart. And this, too, is a part of faith. Because this whole last section of our story, this this excursus that God gives on what awaits Abram's descendants, this slavery, this persecution, is mirrored throughout Scripture Almost every time you see someone with faith or dealing, talking about faith, being put back into right relationship with God, almost every time 
there comes suffering. Because when we find ourselves grasping onto the promises of God with one hand, into the desert of our current life with the other, we find ourselves in the very shape of our Savior, cruciform, and it hurts. But if you have found faith welling up within you, if you have been baptized into the church of Jesus, and you may be caught in between the times, you may feel as if you are being pulled apart, continue to trust and come and taste. Hold in your hand and taste with your lips what making a covenant with him is like. Let's pray together. God, so often we romanticize the pictures that we have of of people of faith. We think that somehow their lives just became a vacation, that they never questioned, they never doubted, they never wrestled, and yet what we find is that their lives were very much like ours. They can be filled with impatience, even anger, and yet you remain faithful. I ask that as we continue in worship together this morning, that we would make noise, that we would wrestle with you, and that we would allow you to prove yourself faithful to us. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.